Good morning again. If you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and if you don't have a Bible, we'll be on page 961 in the black Bibles that you'll see nearby under the chairs. We're continuing our summer series that we've called Truth Shaped, and what we are going to be doing is jumping around to different chapters of the Bible this summer, evaluating why and what we are called to do as God's people. And so we're going to look at what the truth tells us from different sections of Scripture. If this is what it means to be God's people, this is how uh, we are to follow Him. Uh, last week and this week, we're addressing specifically what is the truth? What, what is the Scripture? How do we know we can trust the Scripture? Why do we call this the Scripture? Questions like that. And so this week, we're calling it the measure of truth, the measure of truth from 1 Corinthians 15. What we'll see here in 1 Corinthians 15 is a a measuring stick within the broader measuring stick of the Scriptures. And so uh, we'll see the Gospel and how that stands out as a measuring stick. The ancient term that Christians have used in theology is canon. Have you ever heard the term canon or canonicity when it pertains to the Scriptures? That means the measure of what is Scripture and what's not. And so when ancient Christians talked about uh, the, the, what belonged in the Bible, they would say, well, if it didn't belong, it didn't measure up to the canon. So it's often called canon or canonicity. Uh, and so the English word for that is really just measure or measuring stick. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Excuse me, I skipped a verse here. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. It was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that your word confronts us. Um, God, I pray for our hearts, that you would give us hearts that are open to you, that you would allow us the grace even to listen. So God, we pray that your spirit would meet us here. We pray that you would help us, and we pray that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of years ago, I had to go to the doctor because I thought I had strep throat, so I wanted to get checked for that. And See if I needed to get on some kind of medicine so I didn't just get more sick and make everybody else around me sick. Um, So I hadn't been to the doctor in a while. I don't go to the doctor real regularly. I should probably do that more often as I get older. But um, when I went into the doctor, I was just thinking about how, um, thinking about measuring the truth and measuring scripture. A lot of what a doctor does is they measure us, right? Uh, Any of you been to the doctor in the last year or two or 10, right? When, When you go into the doctor, they'll measure your heart rate, right? They'll measure... Uh, your blood pressure. They'll measure your weight. They'll measure your height. There's all kinds of measurements 
that a doctor will do in his uh, trying to figure out what's wrong with you, trying to understand your health, trying to ascertain how you're doing. Um, this particular time when I went to the doctor, again, it was a couple of years ago, so I was about 40 at the time. Um, and I don't know if this has happened to you, those of you that are older, but doctors are getting younger and younger. Have you noticed that? And so I've found myself measuring the doctor, right? Assessing this doctor who seemed to be about 25 years old and thinking, is it okay for a little kid to be a doctor now? Like, can, can he really help me? You know, like, and so it was just, it was messing with my head. And I know those of you that are older, this has probably happened to you before as well. And so I had to kind of talk myself through it. Like, okay, wait, no, he is a grown-up. He's been to medical school. He knows way more than I do about the human body and about medicine. And so I had to kind of like walk myself back through it. My job here is not to measure him. His job is to measure me. And I think when we approach the scriptures, we do a similar thing. We walk, we walk up to this text, to this book, and we start measuring it when really its job is to measure us. And so what I want to do is I want to say, God is big enough for us to ask questions. God is big enough for us to poke and prod and measure, but we want to make sure we don't flip that around in our heart where we think it's our job to judge God. And so I just want to kind of set the table of our hearts in a sense and say, He's gracious. He invites us to measure. He invites us to analyze. He invites us to investigate. But remember, really, we're the ones that need measuring. We're the ones that need measuring. We should not be measuring the truth, but the truth should be measuring us. And so as we proceed today, we'll remember that all of God's word is breathed out by God, that it's uh, God, it's uh, inspired, as it says in 2 Timothy 3. And Because of that, it has the authority to measure us and evaluate us. At the same time, he gives us freedom. We're his children. He treats us like children. He says, sure, you can ask these questions. So we're asking hard questions today. We're going to be evaluating Scripture, why Scripture is Scripture. But we want to just remember in our hearts that God measures us. We don't measure God. The first thing that we see as we look through the ancient ways that the church has measured what is Scripture and what's not Scripture is the gospel measure. The gospel measure is the first measure that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. That is the standard within the standard, so to speak. It's the measure of the gospel. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So this is a real message that was proclaimed to people. Those people received that message, and it's the message by which we stand. So if you're a follower of Jesus... That message is what makes you a follower of Jesus. That message transforms you. Paul says that there is power in the gospel itself, that the Holy Spirit joins the preaching of the gospel, and we are converted. We begin to believe that. We're transferred from a kingdom of slavery and darkness to a kingdom of light and serving God. And so that message makes us who we are. He goes on in verse 2 and says, "...and by which you are being saved." We believe that this gospel message, gospel literally means good news. We believe this good news about Jesus is saving us. It's saving us from a life of independence where we say, God, I can do it on my own, to a life of gracious dependence where we trust God and we believe what he says is right. It happens at a point in time, but it's also a process that transforms us over our lifetime. He says, you're being saved by this if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. 
if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. What that means is that we have to continue to trust him. We have to continue to believe. And then he goes on and he says something kind of scary and says, unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain. Uh, Scripture often speaks phenomenologically. And what that means is it speaks about what we see, the phenomena in the real world. And so Scripture doesn't have a hard time saying, there's people out there that believed and now they don't believe anymore. So Paul here is saying they believed in vain. It wasn't a real belief or a true belief because they didn't persevere in belief. Now, as you kind of lay all the Scripture on top of each other and do systematic theology and compare one Scripture to another Scripture, we would say people that don't continue to believe never really believed in the first place, right? They never really trusted Jesus because Jesus is very clear that if you're in his hand, nothing could snatch you out of his hand. So when you do systematic theology, you can come to these truths and, and assess, yeah, there's no way you can lose your salvation if you really trust Jesus, you're really saved, and you're in his hand forever. But there's also just the real world we live in where we look at people that appear to believe, and then they stop. And I don't trust Jesus anymore. And what Paul's saying is, unless you continue in faith, you will not be saved. And he says, this gospel is what saves you. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He goes on in verse 4 that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So this good news, this gospel, is a story about Jesus. It's a story that he died for our sins. It's a story that he was buried, and then he rose from the dead. And all of this was in accordance with the ancient prophecies of the Old Testament. So we kind of focused on that last week. We saw that Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. He wasn't throwing out the Old Testament. He was coming to fulfill it, to affirm it. He was coming in line with it. Here Paul says, in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. And so this good news, this gospel, is the measure by which we measure everything else. It is the story within the story. So we would say we've got 66 books here, and they're written by different people in different times and different places and different languages. And they all revolve around one story. That one story is the gospel. That one story is the story of uh, God creating all things good. God made everything perfect. When you look outside, you can see this glory that although the world might be broken and we might live with disease and pain, we can still see the glory of creation. God made all things good and wonderful. And what's wrong with the world is sin. What's wrong with the world is that people don't love God and obey him and walk with him. In the Garden of Eden, we saw Adam and Eve saying, I'd, I'd like to have the gifts of creation, but I'd like to throw out God. And we've all done that. Ever, ever since Adam and Eve, we all walk in those same footsteps. We all say, God, I want your gifts, but I don't want you. Only problem is, without God, we die. Without God, we're broken. Without God, everything gets bad. So everything that we look out into the world and see that's wrong with the world, all the brokenness and pain, that's because we don't love God. When we love God, it, it makes things right. When we don't love God, it makes everything wrong. And so this story is God makes everything good. We've broken the world that was good, but God comes after us in Jesus. And he places our sin upon Jesus on the cross so that Jesus died, according to the Old Testament scriptures, for our sins. He was buried, but he was raised again, promising us life. So when we look at the cross, we can see my sins have been placed on Jesus, and Jesus' perfect righteousness has been given to me so that I can be accepted by God the Father. 
so I can run into his presence, so I can know that he delights in me and he loves me and I'm restored to him. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It's an important message. And when we believe it, it changes us. It measures us. It shows us that we're sinners. And it shows us that God is a great Savior. So that's the essential message. Uh, A lot of times when professors that don't really love the message talk about the Scripture and why they don't believe the Scripture or the problems with the Scripture, um, they'll often say that the early church had a little meeting to decide what the Scripture would be and what the Scripture wasn't. Um, And so we know there was a process in history, right? There was a time when we didn't have a New Testament, and now we have one, right? And there was a process where that developed, where the apostles were writing it. So that's kind of hard for us to imagine. And so when we're trying to understand that, we might say, read the Da Vinci Code or watch the History Channel, and we'll get some confusing messages there, right? And so they'll talk about the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Council being this time, Uh, in the 300s AD where they got together and these guys said, this is scripture and this is not scripture. And the problem with that is that that's kind of like me saying, uh, this is my mother and saying that I made her my mother by saying she's my mother. Do you follow what I'm saying? My mother gave birth to me. So my mother made me. I didn't make my mother. Do, Do you follow the logic here? So when we say the church decided what the scripture was, we're kind of getting things backwards. The scripture is the recording of the message. The scripture is very clear is that the message gives birth to us. Apart from the message, we're sinners that say, God, I hate you. Let me do my own thing. When we hear the message and respond to the message in faith, we're transformed. We're set free. We're saved. We're made one of God's children. So the message makes us who we are. So the scriptures make the church. The church don't make the scriptures. Are you following my logic there? And so what I think is really helpful for us to understand when we think about the term inerrancy is that we affirm that the scriptures are true. And we're not making the scriptures true. We're saying the truth of the scriptures makes us who we are. And so we've had some questions over the last week. We talked about inerrancy before. A lot of people had questions about that. Aren't there problems in the copies of the ancient manuscripts that we have, right? Have you ever noticed the little footnotes in your Bible that say, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't have this word, or they say that, or they say this. Have you ever seen those footnotes? Raise your hand if you've noticed those. Okay, a few of you, the footnote readers here have noticed this. So this next five minutes is for the footnote readers, and for the rest of you, maybe it'll cause you to be more curious and and check this out. But there's uh, a lot of different variants in our ancient manuscripts. First of all, I just want to say we have more ancient copies of the Bible than any other ancient work of literature that exists. So you need to be clear about that, right? Like if you're studying Plato or Socrates or Julius Caesar, there's just a few copies of those guys, and we have thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of this. And what's amazing is with thousands and thousands of copies that have been written all over the world in different places over different times, they agree. It's, it's really amazing. So this is one of the reasons we have no problem saying, I believe in inerrancy. I believe the originals are completely without error, even there, there might be some missing letters from some of the copies. So we have no problem saying both of those things at the same time. I want to give you an evaluation of some of the different variations we have in ancient manuscripts here with just a chart. I know everybody loves pie charts, so let's talk about this for just a minute. Um, Daniel Wallace is a Greek uh, professor at Dallas Seminary, and he's wrote a great book called Reinventing Jesus. So if you're troubled by some of these ancient manuscript questions, if you've read the Da Vinci Code, if you watch the History Channel, you have more questions, it's a great book to read. 
he covers this in depth. This is like one page out of his book. Um, so I would say this is really helpful information. See the large blue section? That's about 75% of the variations we have in ancient manuscripts where one manuscript doesn't agree with the other. 75% of those are a missing letter. So if I say I'm going to the store to buy an apple, that would be correct grammar. If I say I'm going to the store to buy a apple, that's incorrect grammar. Anybody notice the difference there? It's a one-letter difference. Now, when I said I'm going to the store to buy a apple, is that a lie because I'm missing the letter N? Does that change the truth of the message? I would say no. I mean, some of you might say yes, and I'd uh, graciously disagree with you. Um, 75% of our variations in ancient manuscripts are, are that kind of variation. I'm going to the store to buy a apple. And then we've got other manuscripts that say an apple, and we go, oh, this guy left off the letter N. And we still would then say those are reliable manuscripts. It's a very minor difference. 75% of the manuscripts have those kinds of differences. The second largest group are differences in things like word order or a synonym, right? So this is where it doesn't really change anything. It's a slight variation, almost like it was a translation. I do this sometimes. My wife is hard of hearing, and she'll ask me what, and I will, I'm a natural translator, right? I'm a teacher, so I will say it in a different way. She's like, no, what exactly did you say, right? Because she, she missed one word as someone that's hard of hearing, so I've tried to learn to be more exact about that. Well, that happened with ancient uh, transcribers of manuscripts as well. They're writing and writing and writing and copying the New Testament. They're being very careful about it, but they might just flip a word order. Or they might change a synonym. And they might change one word for another word, but it means the same thing. So that's about 20% of our other variations in ancient manuscripts. So that gets us up to about 95% of manuscript variations that we have and again, remember, we have more copies of the New Testament than any other ancient work that exists by thousands, by the thousands. And so 95% of the differences are things that make no difference in the meaning whatsoever. We still believe it. So I would challenge you, can you still believe the gospel even if there's a missing letter? Can you still believe the gospel even if there's a missing letter? And when you recognize that 95% of the differences are those minor differences, can you say and affirm, as, as I do, easily, that we believe that the originals are completely truth, truthful, completely without error? I have no problem saying that, and I think we have a reliable translation and copy today because the differences are so minor. The, the third category are meaningful variants that are not viable. So what this means is they do change the meaning but we know it's uh, not viable. We know that it doesn't make sense. So it's just the wrong word. And when you compare it to the other 5,000 manuscripts, you just go, oh, that's the wrong word there. And we know because we have so many copies of the original, we can easily tell. So that's another 4%. There's only 1% of variation in our manuscripts where it's actually meaningful. And even in those places where it's meaningful and viable, both, where it's significant, big chunks. We're like, wow, that's, that's weird. Um, even those don't change anything about the message. There's no variation in the gospel. So the most disturbing one, and again, I know I'm going to freak out some of you that have never thought about this, so I apologize. Um, just know it's going to be okay, okay? So a little freak out moment here. The end of the Gospel of Mark, if you look at their footnotes, they say, 
earliest manuscripts don't have this ending in the Gospel of Mark. Most professors of Bible believe it was added, that it wasn't original in the Gospel of Mark. But when you go read it, what you read is, this is information that's in all the rest of the Bible. So what happens is they came to the ending of Mark and they thought, this ends too suddenly, so I'm going to add some stuff from the Gospel of Luke and Matthew and the book of Acts. So I'm going to gather material and finish the story. And so that's the kind of variation we have, where again, they're not changing the Gospel. They're saying, oh no, something's missing, and they're trying to fill it in. They're trying to be helpful. And so what it's called is an orthodox error, right? Where it's truthful, but it might not be original. So that's the 1%. That's the biggest problem we have with the New Testament copies. Again, copies we have, more copies than any other ancient work. The biggest problem are things where it's still not changing the gospel. It's still the same story. It's still when you read it, you go, this is amazing. It's coherent. It all fits together. Every author from every different time and every different place and every different language is attesting to the same God and the same gospel, the same good news of Jesus. So I hope this wasn't too scary or upsetting for those of you that had never even thought about variations in manuscripts before. But I want to share it with you to help you to understand that we have an incredibly reliable document here. But more important than the reliability of the manuscripts and the copies and all those details is the message itself. Again, remember, it's not our job to measure the message. It's the message's job to measure us. And so the gospel is the question for you. The gospel is the question, do you believe that you're a sinner or do you believe that you do everything perfectly all the time? I mean, that's my big question for you. Are you as loving and as kind and as righteous and as brave as you could possibly be? Do you perfectly image God every day in every way? Or are you broken and you need a savior? That's the message of this book, that we're all broken, that we all need a savior, and God doesn't just stand off to the side in judgment but he offers us a savior in Jesus. That on Jesus, all of our sins were placed so that we can be restored to the father, so that we can be delighted in by him, so that we can be in his family, we can be adopted as his children. That's the message. And I believe that even with this 1% or 4% or these variations, that that message still shines through so strongly that if I use those variations as an excuse not to believe, that's exactly what they are, just an excuse. It's just one more excuse for me to do my own thing. So my question for you this morning is, are you, are you coming up with more excuses? Are you submitting to the gospel and how it measures you and measures your own heart? The next thing I want us to see is the public measure. And again, to go back, uh, the ancient terms for the gospel measure is the measure of orthodoxy. When ancient Christians looked at what is Scripture and they compared one with the other, they would say, does it agree with this gospel message? And that's called the, the measure of orthodoxy. Is it, is it true? This next section is the public measure, uh, and this corresponds with the ancient measurement of Catholicity. Catholicity, um, you might be thinking when you hear the word Catholic or Catholicity, you might think of Roman Catholic, which is actually kind of an oxymoron because what Catholic means is universal. So when you say the words Roman Catholic, you're saying this city, uh, universal all over the world, right? And so one of the standards of ancient manuscripts and one of the standards of Scripture is that it was Catholic, which means uh, it was publicly held by all these different people. There was broad, diverse agreement from multiple different directions. 
So let's look at what the text says again here in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, 4, it says, uh, or 15, 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And so we have this idea that Jesus in his resurrection appeared to all these different apostles. Not only did he appear to these different apostles, uh, but he also appeared to 500 people. He says, most of these guys are still alive. The scripture repeatedly in the first century context says, these are real people, real witnesses that are really alive in these different cities, and you could go talk to them. This guy's cousin lives over here, and this is the procurator of this city, and this is the governor of this region, and they give you historical, verifiable facts, and they say, go ask questions. This is truth. This is real. This is verifiable. This is public. It's, it's not like a secret little mystery cult. But one of the great um, ironies of the Da Vinci Code is they talk about ancient Christianity as if it was a secret backroom deal as if it was a mystery cult. But what the New Testament says again and again is the mystery is Christ revealed. He's made public. He's given to everybody. Everyone can be a part of this. You don't just have to be a special smart person that can figure out the code. Everyone's invited into the family of God. It's public. It's Catholic. It's universal. It's broad. It's ecumenical. It's everybody come in. Jesus invites everybody. You don't have to be a member of a special club. You just have to trust Jesus and his grace. For you. So that's a measure of truth. I have a picture here of someone uh, asking questions or a bunch of someone's reporters putting microphones in someone's face. Uh, originally, the way our country was founded, the media was designed to hold leaders accountable. That's kind of the design. Uh, you can argue it doesn't really work that way anymore, but that's the idea. The, the idea is accountability, is public accountability. And the scriptures always invite public accountability. The scriptures never say, just believe it, shut up, be quiet. The scriptures invite us to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. Paul's saying these witnesses are still alive. Jesus appeared to these people. You can go meet them. You could talk to them. So again, we don't want to move to the place of we're always judging God. We're always judging his word. But as his children, God gives us great freedom to ask questions. Ask your questions. It's okay. He's not afraid of your questions. It's not a secret. It's not a mystery, but it's something public and something verifiable. So my question for us when it comes to application is, first of all, are you asking the questions that you have? And secondly, uh, is your life open to question as well? Does your life reflect the nature of this message that it is a public, verifiable reality? Or are you trying to hide? Are you trying to kind of like act like you've got it together and construct this plastic facade of a life and think that that's the way to show Christianity? Or is it real? You're saying, this is the message. This is who I am. Come do life with me. Poke, prod, ask questions. It's okay. Because that's the kind of faith that we have. It's open to public verification. So I believe that's the kind of lives that we should live as well. We should be transparent. We shouldn't have a faith that's tribal and secret and small and built around a small set of our preferences, but we should have a very broad, open faith that's open to other people 
poking and prodding and asking questions. When you communicate the gospel to other people, are you communicating uh, your tribal preferences, what you like, or are you communicating this broad idea of a God who made all things, a humanity that broke all things, and a Jesus who comes to restore all things? Are you communicating that broad message? Or are you saying, the only way you can be a Christian is if you come and worship at 1203 Winkler in blue chairs with pink carpet, with this kind of music, and this kind of preacher. You know, I mean, we can, we can be tribally focused where we, we make all of our faith about our preferences and how we do it instead of focusing on the big story, the big story that can be examined from every different direction, the story of Jesus, the story of this Jesus who is universal, who invites everyone to himself, every tongue and tribe to come and worship before the throne. So that's the public measure, the Catholic measure, the diversity measure of it. It can be assessed from multiple different angles. The last one is the endorsement measure. And this lines up with the ancient assessment of apostolicity. So apostles wrote the Bible, basically. That's what we would say. Uh, All of the New Testament is written either by an apostle or a right-hand man of an apostle, right? So like Luke was a traveling partner with Paul. And so the idea is that Paul is stamping his endorsement on everything that Luke writes, and Luke is in association with the apostles when he writes those letters, or the gospel of Mark. Uh, We understand that Mark was Peter's cousin, and he's writing the gospel in line with Peter. And so it's very clear that scripture is either written by an apostle or by an assistant of an apostle, and it all had their endorsement, their official stamp. Uh, Look at verse 8 again, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8 says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So Paul's talking about his apostleship, and it's official. And he says, yeah, I don't deserve to be an apostle. Apostles aren't perfect in the sense that they never make mistakes. God uses sinful men to communicate his truth. But they knew they were apostles. Paul says, yeah, I am an apostle. I don't deserve to be an apostle, but by God's grace, I'm an apostle. And that means I'm an official endorsed messenger of the gospel. In the first century, the word apostle, I've talked about this before, but some of you may have not heard this. The most common usage of the word apostle in the first century was a certification or a certificate that went along with imperial cargo. So apostle meant uh, this is endorsed by the emperor. This is the emperor's stuff. Don't mess with it. That's what the word apostle meant. It was an endorsement. It was an accreditation. It was a certificate that said this is official. So Jesus sent out apostles and said, my apostles speak for me. And the apostles knew that they were sent out by Jesus. A lot of people compare the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, how it was formed, and they'll often lead you down this road where, the, where they will say, well, the Jews were very careful in how they copied the manuscripts, right? They would burn a manuscript if they made an error, and so they were so careful. You can see uh, that the New Testament documents went viral and just were copied all over the place and just spread like wildfire, so there's a difference there. And So we think that the New Testament writers didn't know they were writing Scripture like the Old Testament prophets did. And I would say, no, that's, that's not really a fair comparison. It's, it's clear again and again that the apostles knew they were apostles and knew that that meant they were speaking the words 
of Jesus. You see it throughout Scripture. Uh, I believe the explanation for the way the New Testament manuscripts were copied and spread like wildfire is what African scholar Laman Sane likes to say, that the original language of Christianity is translation. One of my favorite quotes. The Quran can only be the Quran in Arabic. The message of the gospel can be the message of the gospel for every tongue and every tribe and every person in the world. That's always been the way Christianity works. So Laman Sane says the original language of uh, Christianity is translation. And so the New Testament documents just spread like wildfire. And there was a viral, haphazard, crazy spread. And as I said earlier, when you collect all those manuscripts, it's amazing how they all agree. It's amazing that they all agree. But there's this endorsement. They knew they were apostles. They knew that they had, so to speak, a, a badge. They were speaking as official representatives of Jesus. I was thinking at times in my life when I had uh, an official endorsement. I was a security guard once, and I had a special light that went on my Jeep. I don't know if you all have ever worked in security or police, but I had one of these lights, this magnetic light I would put on my Jeep, and I loved to just drive around the campus of this college where I was a security guard, flashing my light everywhere, showing off my authority as a security guard. I didn't have a gun, but I did have a light that flashed, so I was pretty excited about that. Well, the apostles knew they were endorsed. They knew they'd been deputized. They, they knew they had authority. It's very clear, and we see it in Scripture. I wanted to share a few Scriptures with you. Uh, Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 2, says this. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So we see a clear parallelism there. Remember the command of the ancient Old Testament prophets and the commands of the New Testament prophets, basically, the apostles. It's a parallelism, a comparison there. You're getting the words of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. And then farther down in 2 Peter 3, he says this in 2 Peter 3.15 uh, and 16. He says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, his letters, that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with the other scriptures. So Peter just called Paul's letters scriptures. People talk about a lot. What's also interesting here is this technical term for scriptures that's always used in a technical way in the New Testament, the word graphe. Um, here it also is comparing what Paul wrote to the Old Testament scriptures. So in context, what we have here is Peter's saying, Paul writes scriptures, and he's putting it on the same level with the Old Testament scriptures. So again, twice in chapter 3, he's comparing the words of the apostles with the Old Testament prophets. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. That's pretty strong language. I'm writing you a command of the Lord. It's not like I'm writing you some good advice and then maybe after I'm dead, people will decide it's Bible. He's saying, I am writing the commands of the Lord. He says in verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. We don't even, as modern 21st century people, we don't even like these kind of verses because we so don't believe in authority. But Paul speaks with authority. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking the words of the Lord. That's what I'm doing here. I'm an apostle. That's what apostles do. We write the Bible. They knew they were writing the Bible. And then third, 1 Timothy 5, 18, 
It's a quote by Paul, and he says, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, which is from Deuteronomy. So Paul is quoting the Old Testament scripture. And then he quotes another passage, and he says, And the laborer deserves his wages. And you know what he's, he's quoting there? He's quoting Luke chapter 10. Saying the scripture says in the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy, obey this. And then he quotes, and my buddy Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. That's also scripture. So again, the apostles knew they were writing scripture. They held their words to be scripture. So we need to understand that it's not something that just happened by accident, by a quirk of fate, by some backroom cigar-filled deal with evil patriarchal guys, you know, Da Vinci Code style. But it was this message the apostles preached that converted people. They came to Christ. They started following Jesus. Martin Luther says this about the clarity of the word. He says, we shouldn't confuse internal and external perspicuity problems. Perspicuity just means the clarity of the word. So the word is clear. The message is clear. What that means is that when we rebel against the message, we're making up excuses. He says it this way, we dare not attribute to Scripture the limitations of our hearts and minds. When I say the scripture is hard to understand, I dare not use that as an excuse to not obey it. Because there's so much in here that I can understand and obey, I really shouldn't use the parts I don't understand as an excuse not to obey. Are there parts I don't understand? Sure, it's a big book. But I get the big idea. I I, I know the central message. And again, to come back uh, to square one, the big message is the measure of truth measures us. We don't measure it. The measure of truth comes to us and says, yeah, you've been found wanting. You failed. You've fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus loves you so much, he met that measurement for you. He gives grace where you have failed. He invites you into a relationship with him. That's the message, and that's our hope. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us so much. You gave us your son, Jesus. You restore us. You remake us. So I pray that because of your grace, because of your love for us, we would submit to your truth. We would allow it to measure us and to shape us and to change us. Help us to read it, to learn it, to obey it. But most of all, help us to listen to you, to recognize that it's you speaking to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.